Well, good morning, church. My name is Dave. I'm the manager of ministry operations here at Summit Crossing Limestone. I am excited, as always, to have this opportunity to fill in and teach the Word of God uh, with you this morning. Next week, Lord willing, our new teaching pastor, Bill Mogzig, will be here with us. Uh, we are thrilled about that. Um, we thank God for answering so many prayers uh, in directing him and his family to our church family. So we hope that you will join us next week uh, for his first Sunday and first message at Summit Crossing Limestone. <clears throat> if you're visiting with us and you'd like to know more about how to connect further with our church family, we invite you to please fill out one of the green connect cards and uh, the seat back in front of you. You can just drop that off in the offering box at the back of the worship center and we'll get back with you uh, about that uh, soon with more information about how to plug in. Well, happy Father's Day to all you dads. Uh, we love you. We thank God for you. Uh, I'd like to take a minute to, to pray for you uh, and for all of our dads before we uh, continue with the service. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the earthly fathers in our lives. We ask you to bless the fathers among us, to fill them with your spirit, guide them by your wisdom, and sustain them by your gracious hand. This Father's Day, we honor the many sacrifices fathers make for their children and families and the ways, both big and small, that they shepherd their children to mature as your image bearers and walk with you by faith. So too, we honor all those who have helped fill the void when fathers pass early or are absent, grandfathers and uncles, brothers and cousins, teachers, pastors and coaches, and of course, the heroic single mothers and other women of our families. For those who are fathers, we ask for help and humility in the face of the task of parenting. God, we confess we constantly need your grace. Grace to help us reflect you well to our children and grace to repent and reconcile when we sin. We look to you, our only perfect father, to give us all that we need. Thank you for already giving us your son Jesus so that by his cross we could become your beloved children. Help us to always rest in the gospel of Jesus and have confidence in your unshakable fatherly love toward us. From the grace that we have received, help us to pour out grace in our families, our church, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and wherever you may lead us for your glory. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, also on this Juneteenth weekend, we want to give thanks to God for the abolition of slavery in our country. Uh, we do celebrate freedom from slavery for our African-American brothers and sisters, our neighbors who are made in God's image and loved by God and us. I want to be clear, this is not at all any kind of political or partisan statement any more than when we pause to especially thank God on July 4th for the blessings that he's graciously shown to our country. Uh, so as Christians, we do acknowledge the evil of chattel slavery and we praise God for abolishing it in the U.S. So thank you, Lord. For that gift, we pray that you would continue to bring an end to slavery around the world, wherever it exists. And we pray and ask you to lead all your people around the world, as your word says, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Lord, bring your kingdom and do your holy will in all the earth. And we ask you to please move powerfully among us now as we look to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our teaching series through the Gospel of John. We're going to cover most of chapter 7 uh, this morning. I certainly won't try to preach everything that's in the chapter, uh, but I would like to read most of the chapter for us and then highlight some main points. We'll begin reading in John chapter 7, verse 11. <clears throat> 
The Apostle John writes, The Jewish leaders were looking for Jesus at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, that is the Jewish leaders, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, referring back to a previous chapter, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, 
Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. There's a lot going on in this text. Again, won't try to cover all of it, but uh, there are some things here that are helpful for us to highlight. The first thing we can see in our text this morning is that Jesus elicits mixed reactions. Jesus elicits mixed reactions. When people encountered Jesus, they were driven to respond to him. I can't think of anyone in Scripture who encountered Jesus and walked away bored. They responded. But as we know, people respond very differently to Jesus. In chapter 7, some people in the crowd are receptive to Jesus. So when they hear him, they believe in him. Others are confused by Jesus. They have questions. For some people, they're very sincere questions. And ultimately, we see some of them also believing in Jesus. Still others are opposed to Jesus. They're hostile and resistant to him. And they sometimes seem to disguise their hostility with insincere questions or objections. As Christians, we shouldn't be surprised when people reject the gospel of Jesus. It's going to happen. We can brace ourselves for that. But that doesn't mean that we should have a posture of wringing our hands and hanging our heads and expecting defeat all the time as though Jesus wasn't still alive and still working in the world. Because just like we shouldn't be surprised when people reject the gospel, we also shouldn't be surprised when people believe the gospel. The same Jesus who saved sinners in John 7 is the same Jesus powerfully saving sinners today. Some people will be receptive to the message. Some people will embrace Jesus and be saved. So if, if you've never been able to lead anybody to faith, don't give up. Don't quit sharing the gospel. Don't be discouraged. Jesus is with you. He is working out his will in the world. And some people, we believe, will come to faith. We should expect that some will believe. And we should expect that some will have questions. In verse 27, some people said, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So there was this religious tradition at the time. It wasn't from the Bible. It was just commonly believed, (coughs) excuse me, that the Messiah, after he was born in Bethlehem, would at some point disappear and be totally unknown until he showed up to bring about the salvation of Israel. It was this idea that since Moses was hidden away in the wilderness for years before God sent him to deliver Israel from Egypt, in the same way they believed the Messiah would be hidden away and unknown by everyone until it was time for him to suddenly show up and bring about the day of the Lord. And people think, well, this can't be him. Because we know he's from Nazareth. He's, he's been living and working here. We know him. And speaking of Nazareth, he can't be from Nazareth in the north and from Bethlehem in the south, right? So clearly, this cannot be the Messiah, regardless of all the other signs, all the self-evident authority of his teaching. Now, just like we saw in chapter 6, there's pride going on here in this kind of response. They're assuming that they already understand the whole picture, and they seem to be unwilling to humbly ask Jesus to explain. It wouldn't have been hard to say, hey, Jesus, did you happen to move to, Jerusalem, uh, to uh, uh, Galilee by chance or to Nazareth? But when people are willing to ask us questions, we shouldn't be afraid of their questions. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid of the truth. You don't have to have all the answers. 
You don't have to be afraid of people uh, looking for more information. And we shouldn't be afraid of our own questions. Some of you may have big, difficult questions that are keeping you secretly on the fence about Jesus. It's okay not to know all the answers, but you don't have to stay on the fence. Some of the people in this passage, it seems like, came to full belief in Jesus, came to trust in Him without, as far as we can tell, having their specific questions answered. So bring your questions. We welcome questions here, and we certainly don't have all the answers, but we believe God has clearly revealed in the Bible all the most important answers and all the answers you truly need in order to fully trust in Jesus. So bring your questions, let your kids ask questions. We don't have to be afraid, and it's okay if we don't know it all. We expect questions and confusion, and we expect resistance, and we expect acceptance because Jesus elicits all kinds of mixed reactions. The second thing we see in our passage is that Jesus exposes and transforms hearts. Jesus exposes and transforms hearts. Let's look especially at the last scene of the chapter. John shows us this contrast. He keeps beating this drum, this contrast between hypocrisy and integrity. There's the hypocrisy of the religious leaders on the one hand and the integrity of the officers and Nicodemus on the other hand. So the Pharisees and chief priests have gotten jealous of Jesus and nervous that maybe lots of people are going to follow him instead of following them. And that's intolerable, so we've got to do something to stop this. So they try to play the might makes right card and flex their authority. So they send some of the Jewish temple guards. These are not Roman soldiers. These are, they're in the temple. They're Jewish temple guards. They say, arrest this man. We're the boss. You're the muscle. Go arrest him. He can't be the all-conquering Messiah if he's in prison, right? So arrest him, and that'll prove that he's a fake. And then no one will believe in him, and they'll all be following us again, and everything will be fine. But the guards go, they come back, and there's no Jesus. Why didn't you arrest him? I mean, we were going to. We had every intention to follow your orders, but, but then we heard him. We just couldn't. We couldn't just follow your orders after we heard him teach. No one ever spoke like this man. Suddenly, we would all rather defy you, the leaders of Israel, than arrest Jesus. His, his word is powerful. His word is self-authenticating. His word, I, we're, there's something compelling and convincing about him. And we came back different and empty-handed. So the leaders flip out. Are you kidding me? I guess everyone's dumb except us. That's what they say in verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Morons? I mean, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Like, that's going to prove anything. Like, we don't have any evidence, we don't have an argument, but we're the experts and you should just trust our expertise, right? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I mean, do you hear the arrogance in that? The corruption. Instead of being humble before God, they arrogantly saw themselves as too wise to ever be wrong. Even when confronted with their hypocrisy by Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's one of them. He's in the group. He sees all this happen and he's like, hey guys, um, we're supposed to be the law experts, but arresting him like this without a hearing first 
is against our law. We, we can't really, with integrity, seek to uphold God's law and by squashing false teachers by means of breaking God's law. God doesn't need us to disobey Him in order to defend Him. And they're like, Nick, what is wrong with you? Shh. Like, don't cloud the issue with the facts. Our mind is made up. What are you, some kind of backwoods Galilean too? I mean, y'all look out for each other or something? We look out for ourselves here. Are you looking out for your own? I mean, this is some serious, I guess technically not racism, but some kind of, I don't know what, regionism? Like, our region is smarter than your region, you dummy Galilean. I mean, come on, this is blatant hypocrisy and pride and corruption. And John is showing us that Jesus either exposes our heart's hypocrisy or He transforms our hearts to have integrity. He either exposes our heart's hypocrisy like the Pharisees, or He transforms our hearts to have integrity like Nicodemus. John is saying to the early church, his uh, first century listeners, don't be intimidated by the big, powerful authorities wanting you to deny Jesus. John says to them, guys, it is better to have integrity and lose than to be a hypocrite and win. It is far better to have integrity before God and walk with Him with a clear conscience, honoring Jesus, and seemingly lose in this world than to be a hypocrite and compromise and earn some kind of earthly goal short of faithfulness to God. John says to them and to us, guys, let's follow Jesus with integrity at all costs. Faith in Jesus fits with truth and humility and integrity, not pride and hypocrisy. There's the contrast that he's showing here. Faith fits with integrity. It does not fit with hypocrisy. So we want to be a people of faith. He's calling us to be people who walk also in integrity, believing in Jesus and honoring him in all ways. John wants us to fear giving ourselves over to hypocrisy like we would fear personally opposing Jesus. There are professing Christians in the world who hate nothing more than to have their authority challenged and be called to match their lives up with the Bible. And that anger is not from God. It's from below, James says. Now, that does not mean that we should be arrogant or rude when we think we see a brother or sister in sin. We should humbly and gently ask questions, have a real discussion, and where necessary, call our brother or sister to repent. And praise God, forgiveness is available. Cleansing and transformation is available. You may be walking with hidden hypocrisy in your heart. You may be wearing a mask and putting on a front in public and yet, when you're with a different group of people, you're totally different. Or when you're alone and the door is locked, you're totally different. And Jesus is calling to you and saying, I, I didn't die so that you could live that double life that's leading to destruction. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to people, but the end of that way is death. Jesus is calling you to life, to repent of sin, to embrace Jesus by faith and the integrity that comes with Him. And there's forgiveness available, cleansing and transformation. If you remember back in chapter 3, Nicodemus sure seemed to at least uh, be somewhat hypocritical like the others. But clearly God was working on him. And here he is in chapter 7. I don't know if he came all the way to faith yet, but there's some kind of change going on. And, and John is highlighting, for it, uh, highlighting it for us. 
that Nicodemus is here speaking truth to power, humbly challenging his own team and calling them to have godly integrity. God, would you give us united hearts that follow Jesus in truth, both in public and in private, when it's convenient and when it's costly. God, transform our hearts to have Christ-like integrity that flows from faith. Lastly, Jesus' message is shocking and controversial. Why are people so divided over Jesus? Well, because his message is shocking and controversial. So last week we saw in verse 7 that Jesus told his brothers uh, leading up to this feast, he said, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus says, part of what my ministry is is to testify to the world that its works are evil and people hate me. Well, much of the rest of the chapter, that's what Jesus does. Jesus taught publicly in the temple at this feast for several days, and John does not record for us most of what he said, but he highlights a few things and puts them together for us to make a kind of mini-sermon for us from Jesus. And this sermon is shocking and controversial. I won't try to cover it all, but just to summarize and paraphrase, first, Jesus says, number one, to this crowd, he says, you don't honor God. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. None of you keeps God's law, Jesus says. Had to have been a very popular saying, right? Apart from him, the Bible teaches that we all default to being either Philistines or Pharisees. Like Old Testament Philistines, this people who rejected the God of Israel and walked in their own way and had their own own gods. Like Old Testament Philistines, we default by nature to ignore the true God and worship what we want, live how we want, make gods in our image. Or, like Pharisees, we can work hard to pretend to obey God. All the while, what we're really after is for others to worship us and be impressed with us and praise us. Or, more likely, if you're like me, we default to being some mixture of the two compromising where we want to compromise, and performing for the praise of others where we want to, ignoring our own corruption and yet arrogantly looking down on others who break our selective standards, even though, truth be told, none of us holds our own standards perfectly. We've all broken even our own laws. Jesus tells the law people, none of you keeps the law. You don't honor God, he says, but he goes on. Point number two in his mini-sermon here, Jesus says, you don't know God. Verse 28, he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So there's this contract. You need me. You need to listen to me. You don't know God. This is super offensive to a moralist, right? A legalist says, I'm okay essentially with God because I keep the law. I keep the checklist. A moralist, very similar, I'm Uh, okay with God ultimately because I'm good enough. may not have a list, but I've got my own standards and I am a good person. This is super offensive to a moralist. What are you talking about, Jesus? Of course I know God. I'm a good person. We've all heard some variation of that. But knowledge of God isn't earned by good behavior, Jesus says. 
Our sin has separated all of us from God. And since we are the rebellious problem, we can't be our own solution. Jesus says, shockingly, offensively, to the people who truly thought they were closest to God, you don't honor God, you don't know God, and thirdly, you can't reach God. Verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to God, him who sent me. You'll seek me and you'll not find me. Where I am with God, you can't come. I'm going to the Father and you can't come. You can't get there on your own. You want to get to heaven. You hope to get to God, but you cannot reach God your way. Wow. What a sermon. I know it's not a one-to-one comparison of the Israel and, and our church, but just, just to imagine the offensiveness of this, what would it be like if Jesus showed up as a guest preacher one Sunday and said, I've got three points this morning. You don't honor God, you don't know God, and you can't reach God. And then we'll have an invitation. <laughs> it starts to make sense why some people were so opposed to him. This is a shocking and controversial message. Not even the lights like him. His three points are shocking, but then his invitation is a whole different kind of shocking. John says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, which like Joey said last week, this was the day of the feast that they had been storing up all this water every day, and then they were pouring out all this huge amounts of water at the altar as part of this festival. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You're far from God. You've dishonored God. You don't know Him. You cannot get to Him. Are you thirsty? Come to me. Come to me and drink, Jesus says. I will so satisfy your thirsty soul that you will go from being a desert inside to being like whole rivers of living water. Not just one river. Rivers of living water, real life in God, just overflowing and never stopping. If the first three points were true, this invitation is shocking. What qualifies you to come drink? Thirst. What kind of thirst is he talking about? People have all kinds of desires. Can we come to Jesus and expect him to fulfill any kind of desire? Like being thirsty for sin or thirsty for the things of this world or thirsty for praise? Obviously not. It's part of one message. It's, it's a thirst of the soul that corresponds to the need that he's been talking about. So he said, first of all, that we don't honor God. What kind of thirst does a person feel who believes deeply that they have dishonored their God? They thirst for forgiveness. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. I know I'm guilty. I know I'm sinful. I need someone to rescue me from what I deserve. 
I don't want to be this sinful rebel against God anymore. I would love, oh God, somehow to be made clean and forgiven and to be counted righteous before you. Jesus says to you, come to me and drink. What else? He said, we don't know God. The person who hears Jesus and truly believes that they don't know their God thirsts to know him. It's one thing to be forgiven by God. It's another thing entirely to get to know him personally, to be not just known by him, but to be accepted fully and loved by him. I want to be known, the heart says. I want to be truly known and truly loved by God Almighty. Can you imagine the everlasting one, the high and lifted up one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy? I want to be known by him. What's the point of having the praise of people or the power in this world or comfort in this life if the one I was made by and made for, if I'm alienated from him, if I'm against him? Jesus says to that soul, come to me. You can come to me and drink. And if you know, if you know you could never reach him on your own, If you know you could never earn your way to heaven and that you need to know that, then you thirst for someone somehow to give you hope, to give you assurance, to give you eternal life, eternal, forever. Can you imagine joyful life swimming in God's glorious presence forever? Can you believe it? Jesus says to us, Come to me and drink. You got need, I've got supply. Not just a little bit, but rivers of living water. How? John says Jesus is talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus shockingly offers to people like us God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit to be in us and with us forever. Jesus, the Bible says, can give you his spirit because he first took your cross. John said, he's talking about the spirit who hadn't yet been poured out. Why? Because Jesus had not yet been glorified. First he had to die in our place and rise again from the dead in glory. And then everything is set and there's nothing in the way anymore. No sins in the way anymore from the Holy Spirit just being poured out on all who believe in Jesus. His hour had not yet come in chapter 7, but it was coming. And at the perfect time, Jesus humbly took the cross of death for you and for me. We didn't honor God, but Jesus honored God. And then he took our judgment to bring us forgiveness. We didn't know God, but Jesus on the cross was separated from the Father to bring us into God's presence. We could not reach God, but Jesus tasted death on the cross for us, was buried, really died to bring us eternal life. How could you not love a Savior like that? The first three points of Jesus' sermon here are shockingly offensive to the proud heart, but the invitation is shockingly beautiful to the humble heart. 
How do you drink like that? If, if I know that I don't know God, if I know that I've not honored him, if I know I can't get to him, and Jesus says, just come to me. Where I'm going, you can't come. Come to me and I'll take you there. Okay, how do I, how do I drink? How do I come? Jesus says, the one who believes in me. Just like in chapter 6, with the bread of life. What does it mean to eat? He said, believe in me. What does it mean to drink? Believe in me. He makes it so easy, so accessible. You don't have to work or earn. You have to believe. It means you look at the cross and the resurrection and say, I understand that you died as a sacrifice in the place of sinners. I agree in my heart that what you did is beautiful and true. And I trust that you did it for me. Letting go of everything else, I trust in you to save me and to satisfy my soul. This is amazing. This is understandable. Even children can, can understand this. I wonder, do we have any kids here, like six and under? Not going to embarrass you, but if you, if you want to stand up or older, that's fine. Um, I, I was thinking, uh, little kids, we, we can do this. We can understand this. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I've got these hand motions I try to use with Gus, try to help him understand, because kids hear the word believe, and it means other things, right? Believe in Santa Claus. Believe he exists. And we've got to work to deprogram and help them understand. Belief in Jesus doesn't just mean believe that Jesus exists. Belief in God doesn't just mean believe that God exists. When the Bible talks about faith or belief, which is the same word in the original language, we, you look at how it's used, and, and you could look at at least three different aspects of it. And I just, just went through them. I want to go through them again. And kids, you can do these hand motions. And you can say, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? You point to your head and you say, understand. Understand what, that he died as a sacrifice in my place. You put your hand on your heart and you nod your head. You say, agree. That there's a yes in the soul. My heart resonates with this. This is beautiful. This is good. It's not just I know that it happened, but... I love what I see. And then thirdly, you put your hands up to God and you say, trust. So understand, agree, and trust. If you understand what Jesus did on the cross, you don't have to understand everything about it. You never will. But the basics, the simple truth, he died in your place. He took your punishment. And if you look at that and there's a yes in your soul that says, what a God to die for me. Yes. And then you don't just believe that it's good news, but that it's good news for you. You you lift your hands and you trust. I trust that it's for me. Save me. Where's repentance in that? It's in the yes. I'm saying no to everything else and yes to Jesus. And it's in the trust. I'm not trusting myself to satisfy. I'm not trusting myself to save. I'm letting go. I understand what you did. I I agree that it's beautiful and I trust in you. That's what the Bible calls us to. And Jesus says, that's all you got to do. Be thirsty and come to me and drink. And God himself will be for you rivers of living water with forgiveness and righteousness, peace with God, eternal life, everything you could ever want or truly need. Not stuff, not comfort in this life necessarily, even though he gives us so much to enjoy, but real life the Holy Spirit of God forever. You got questions? Fine. Absolutely. Let's discuss them soon. I'll be in the back. Sean's in the back. We'd love to talk with you. 
uh, as soon as you're willing, but we pray that you will come to Jesus now. You don't have to have every question answered to see the glory of Jesus in the grace that he offers through his own cross and be convinced that he is true and agree and trust him. You don't have to wait. Have you been resistant? Maybe even secretly, maybe for years. Maybe you've wanted for selfish reasons to appear righteous on the outside, but inwardly you you treasure sin. And you love to be your own God and you love to do what you want and not have anybody tell you what to do and it doesn't bother you. Maybe you're comfortable wearing the mask and being two different people. Jesus is calling you, don't go that way. Don't give yourself to the destruction that that leads to. It's not superficiality and pretense that saves, it's Jesus that saves. And when he saves you, he transforms your heart to create integrity. Not to make you, you're not perfect, you're not sinless, but when you sin, it bothers you and it turn, you, you want to turn from sin and trust in Jesus again. And be clean again. And he does. And if you've believed in Jesus, I just want to encourage you, let's keep on believing in Jesus. We keep coming back to this in John. It's the whole book. It's a good book to say, this is what it means to believe. Let's go. Let's believe in Jesus. Let's keep coming to him to have our soul satisfied every day. Let's keep worshiping and keep looking to him in the word and walking by his spirit. And, and this is not, we'll keep coming back to this too, this is not an individual thing. It's a community project. We keep believing in him to have our souls satisfied. Let's keep encouraging each other every day in gospel community. Let's keep walking close to him in radical integrity and, and processing life together, helping each other grow closer and closer to Jesus. And as we feast on Jesus and have our souls satisfied, let's overflow. Let's let those rivers go forth, declaring and displaying the gospel to others. Boldly and compassionately, lovingly speaking the truth and offering hope and trusting Jesus with the results. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Such a simple message, and yet you're so profound. You're so beautiful, God. We love Jesus Christ. We love you, God. We love you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for pouring out your spirit and giving life and righteousness and fellowship with God to all who put their trust in you. Oh, God, would you save someone right now? Coming out of the darkness to walk in the light, to trust in Jesus and not trust themselves or their pretenses and disguises anymore. God, we need you. We look to you. We worship you, oh God. Change us. Make us more like Jesus. Help us to keep drinking of your rivers of life by faith in Jesus, and God calls us to overflow, carrying the good news to the ends of the earth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God is good. We're thankful for this time that we have every week to observe the Lord's Supper, that you had a cup in your seat when you came in. It's got two seals on top. The first one opens up with a wafer of bread. And the second one opens a cup of juice. The bread 
according to the Bible, represents Christ's body that was given for us on the cross. And the cup of juice represents his blood that was poured out for us on the cross. His sacrifice in our place to be everything for us that we need to give, bring us to God. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in this, but you, we just ask that you belong to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, we ask you to refrain from taking this, but please trust in Jesus. If you have questions, love to talk with you in the back. Sean would love to talk with you in the back. Uh, you don't have to come to us to be saved. You can come to Jesus by faith right now. But if you have questions, we'd love to talk with you, pray with you, celebrate with you. But if you're a believer, let's remember what Jesus has done. And with our bodies, we're, we're visualizing what we do with our souls by faith all the time, which is we're saying, just like Jesus is, uh, ju just like we need bread and, and uh, drink for our bodies to give us life and to satisfy us, so our souls need Jesus for life and satisfaction. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul adds, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, gloriously proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Amen. God, thank you for the cross. Receive our worship through song now. Be glorified in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. When you're ready, let's stand and worship God together.